Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 57 of our podcast. As usual, I am Dr. David C. Noe, and I'm here in the vomitorium with my good friend and fantastic co-host, Dr. Jeff T. Winkle. Yes, yes, you are. I'm right here. And how are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great today. How are you doing, Dave? I am so excited about this episode. Yeah. Are you excited? Yes, I'm really excited. Maybe a little uh, a little apprehensive, a little nervous. But Why? I, why? Well, no, it's because this is a big deal. It's That's a big why. name, isn't it, it? Yes, yes. This is a really, uh, we're so blessed to have Heather on the, oops, I gave it away, didn't I? Yes, you did. Of course, I gave it away last week, too. That's right. So if, if listeners will understand. Well, let's go on to the shout out. Okay. And then we'll get on to the quote and so forth. Let's do it. Who do we got? So here this week, we have William DeMann. Will, Will DeMann. Will DeMann. Yeah. So uh, Will is a recent graduate of Calvin University and a social studies teacher. His favorite classical work is the Philoctetes. Really? Yes. I don't think I've ever heard that before. From anybody. No. I mean, I love that play, but I've yes. never heard that, that that people would say, that's my favorite. This is Sophocles, yes. right? The yep. guy gets shot in the stinky heel and he dies? He doesn't. He has to, Odysseus has to come and get his bow before he dies. Oh, that's right. 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 But, but he's, he, he's stuck in a cave with a stinky foot. And he's got just a horrible stench filling the island. Yes. Right. Uh, okay. So Will <laughs> likes the Philoctetes, particularly the, um, I'm going to mispronounce this, Simosiani. Oh, oh, sorry. Seamus Haney. Oh, my God. Seamus Haney. He likes the Seamus Haney translation. Mm-hmm. Quote, he tries to flex his meager Latin abilities on his students whenever he can. That sounds awkward. <laughs> Using it to help them break down large academic vocabulary. Okay. He loves, here's the good part, Winkle, because yep. this is the part about us. Oh, yeah, yeah. He loves to listen to the podcast while doing chores because it helps him work his mind alongside his hands. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks, Will. Absolutely, Will. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you keeping the flame alive out there, teaching social studies, bringing some Latin into it. It's really hard for me not to say you demand. You demand. So I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say it by not saying it. Especially since there's a good chance he has never, oh, no, ever, he's never, heard, never that heard that, that before. before. Exactly. So, that, so, Will, that's for you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, what, what's going on in the podcast today? Uh, again, you know, this this is a, this is a special moment for us. We have on the show today Heather MacDonald. Yes. So I'd like to read just a little bit of her biography because uh, this is incredible. Heather MacDonald is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author. She is a recipient of the 2005 Bradley Prize. McDonald's work at City Journal has covered a range of topics, including higher education, immigration, policing, homelessness, and homeless advocacy, criminal justice reform, and race relations. Wow. A polymath. There's more. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, New Republic, and the New Criterion. And McDonald's newest book, The Diversity Delusion. Here's the whole title. The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture, 2018. Man, oh man. But today we're not, we're not talking to, with her about political issues, but uh, the kind of the underpinnings of her thought of the, coming from her, her education. 
Correct, yes. correct. So maybe we should give the listener just a little bit of a, um, of a background of how it is that we have Heather on the show. Yeah, do that. So you and I have both been uh, longtime fans of her work, mm-hmm. things she's written online. About a decade ago, I read uh, her work, Are Cops Racist? And uh, I've paid attention to her. I mean, the answer she gives, of course, is no. And uh, it's a controversial answer, but her research is absolutely stellar. So yeah. if you want to disagree with the thesis, you know, that's, that's fine. But you, I think you, you owe it to the argument to dig down deep into the details and, you know, see whether she's, she's wrong or right. Right, 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 right. But as I was reading through this work, The Diversity Delusion, I thought, you know, maybe I should just, I should just contact Heather and see if she'd like to come on our podcast. Hmm. And she has been unfailingly gracious and kind since that moment. Yeah. So I, I think a lesson out there is, is just ask. Just ask. Yeah, yeah. Correct. But now we are extremely grateful to Heather for, for agreeing to come on the show. And Dave, you got the opening quote, right? Yes, I do. I'm holding the book right here in my hand. So this is from The Diversity Delusion, 2018, page 221. Heather says, Humanistic learning is also an end in itself. It is simply better to have escaped one's narrow, petty self and entered minds far more subtle and vast than one's own than never to have done so. The Renaissance philosopher Marsilio Ficino said that a man lives as many millennia as are embraced by his knowledge of history. Hmm. One could add, a man lives as many different lives as are embraced by his encounters with literature, music, and all the humanities and arts. These forms of expression allow us to see and feel things that we would otherwise never experience. Society in a 19th century Russian feudal estate, for example, or the perfect crystalline brooks and mossy shades of pastoral poetry, or the exquisite languor of a Chopin nocturne. Ultimately, humanistic study is the loving duty we owe those artists and thinkers whose works so transform us. It keeps them alive as well as us, as Petrarch and Poggio Bracciolini understood, the academic narcissist, insensate to beauty and nobility, trapped in the diversity delusion, knows none of this. Now, was that the quote when you read it, you thought, hey, this she might be... A good guess for the show. Precisely yeah. so. Okay. Right? I knew that she had this keen mind for analyzing societal and cultural uh, material. I didn't know that she had this very carefully articulated and well-defended commitment to mm-hmm. the things that you and I enjoy and talk about on this podcast. I'm excited. Should we get to it? Yeah, without further ado. Excellent. So this is David and uh, my guest host here. Yeah, this is Jeff. Very nice to meet you, Heather. Hi, Jeff. So uh, we are just incredible fans of your work. I just have to say that at the beginning, and uh, it's, I've read your book, um, Are Cops Racist? I read that nearly a decade ago, and then just about a month ago, I think, I read Diversity Delusion. And uh, both of them were just marvelous examples of careful research, also uh, incredible courage, I would say, in the kind of scholarship that you develop. And uh, I know Jeff has read a number of your articles. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, in this interview, Heather, we're we're, we're hoping it's something um, hopefully a, a little bit different uh, for you from maybe a typical interview request that you get. And so, you know, we're really interested. Um, you know, maybe not so much in you talking, you know, specifically about you know policing policy and a lot, you know, a lot of the specific, specifics of the stuff that you write on, but more so in kind of the kind of the philosophy behind it. And our you know, our podcast is a is a classics, uh, you know, Greco-Roman antiquity themed podcast. Um, but we're also, you know, very interested in um, kind of the state of the humanities writ large. Uh, the, um, and with you in particular, kind of your own uh, kind of humanistic study, uh, which we know that you have a, um, a long background in, and how that's affected kind of your ideas and your work and your life. Well, this morning, I have to say, uh, makes my experience, my experience this morning makes this discussion quite relevant. I was 
going to my lovely outdoor pool complex at a high school here in Irvine, California, somehow it came up. The, the guy that was um, overseeing entry into the, into the facility mentioned that his stepfather, I, I guess he had asked me about what I did and, and why I was able to, to commute between New York and California. And I said, well, I'm a writer and uh, so I can work really wherever I am. And uh, he said, what do you write on? I said, well, public policy matters. I sometimes write about policing and crime and identity politics. And he said, well, my stepfather uh, also writes, but he does boring stuff. And his boring stuff was being a scholar of 18th century literature. <laughs> and, and he's at, at King's College in London. And apparently he had just discovered uh, a previously unknown play by a 16th century playwright. And I said to him, what are you talking about? Your stepfather has the greatest job in the entire world. He has the most <laughs> important job uh, as a curator of these great works. But, you know, what I came up against was the popular conception uh, that somehow the study of literature was marginal and, mm -hmm. and not the main thing. Whereas for me, for much of, well, all of the first part of my life, that was the thing that I aspired most fervently uh, to do. And, and, and I still don't think that there's any greater privilege than being involved in the study of the humanities. Yeah. Yeah. So in as a as a jumping off point, maybe, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, your autobiography in, in terms of your English studies at Yale and then additionally at Cambridge? Because uh, those who know your work, which is uh, frankly a large body of people, you know, I was I was telling a, a near family member, you know, I'm going to be interviewing Heather McDonald. And he immediately said, well, I, I know who she is. I see her on television. I, I really like the thing she has to say. Uh, but they may not know about your broader interests and some of the things we were just talking about. Would you be willing to share a little bit of that with our audience, the things that you studied in terms of English literature, you know, before becoming well-known as a, a scholar of social policy? Sure. And I do so at the risk of befuddling your listeners, because what I'm about to describe really defies common sense. <laughs> uh, but, but I really am an academic monkey, as I say, that, that was what I tried to do, I, I came to Yale in 1974, already fascinated by language, and I, I gravitated towards uh, literary works that were most sort of rich and and wild in their use of of language, whether Melville, Moby Dick, or or Virginia Woolf. Hmm. And Yale turned out to be in the middle of a big ferment intellectually. Uh, it had been the source decades ago of a important style of reading known as new criticism, which was a reaction against a very historical approach to books, uh, which sort of didn't look very closely at what was actually on the page, but spent a lot of time putting an author in his historical context and maybe commenting on the moral qualities of a novel, but, but didn't really focus in on the specific words and structures that an author used. So Yale uh, developed this form of reading uh, known as close reading, uh, such names as Cleonth Brooks, that said, look, we're just going to, if we're reading a poem, 
we really want to find out what that author is doing with language and and the history, the context, the political context is secondary if we're going to look at it at all. So that was the the usual state of of literary criticism at Yale. Again, very important movement. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got there, uh, that paradigm was cracking apart, and Yale was the main t- recipient of a form of thinking and philosophy that was developing in Europe, in Paris, and in the United States, known as deconstruction or post-structuralism. So this is this is where Derrida is is starting to uh, come into vogue. Yep, this is the okay. rise of, of Jacques Derrida, who would come and teach periodically at Yale, surrounded by a a swarm of devoted, uh, <laughs> absolutely blind graduate students. And Yale's version of Derrida was Paul de Man, a a true mm. scholar of European literature, uh, who had you know, cut his chops on, on the English romantics. But what these people proposed, it, it purported to be a theory of language. Uh, it purported to describe and, and reveal hidden facts about language that the deluded public was uh, unaware of, which were such propositions. And this again, David and Jeff, is where I, I risk really losing your listeners, because they're so counterfactual, the claim made by deconstruction, and and remember, this is a literature department, was that language always breaks down. It is never successful uh, because it's a set of arbitrary signs. Its meaning is unstable, inevitably ambiguous. We can never really get access to a speaker's intention. And literature, they claimed, is only about its own failure. It's self-referential. This is crazy. Uh, you know, the the reason people write novels until maybe recently with the height of postmodernism was to try to illuminate the human experience and mm-hmm. to and to put into words insights into what motivates human beings that we would otherwise not have access to. To say that literature is about its own mode of representation is incredibly hermetic and 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 simply wrong. But I was seduced by this because I was already, as I say, very interested in language, but but not having ever studied linguistics. And this this held out promises, this hidden sort of mystery cult of the initiated who who possessed a knowledge that made them more enlightened and superior to those who read books thinking they were reading about moral dilemmas and and human foibles. So I wasted my time at Yale studying Jacques Derrida, studying Demand, uh, Lacan, Heidegger, one can be, you know, that he's, he's a sort of a fence liar. He, there, there may be indeed uh, valid points to him, and he certainly also foregrounded the relevance of, of language in creating human experience. And so instead of spending as much time reading actual books and novels and poetry, which I did do, and I'm grateful for that, I also spent way too much time struggling with these theoretical texts, which were incredibly clotted in their, in their language and just ended up recycling a set of empty rhetorical gestures 
that had no reference to the real world. Hmm. That was just, it became more and more uh, mannered and arcane. But I will say this, the one advantage of my time being at Yale, and I was there from 74 to 78, was amazingly, identity politics had not hit, multiculturalism had not hit. Hmm. Nobody thought to complain that English 25, the gateway course for English majors, contained only dead white males. I was privileged to read Chaucer, Spencer, Milton, uh, Pope, Wordsworth, Wallace Stevens, without anyone pouring the poison into my ear of thinking that I was being deprived or, or somehow oppressed because I was not reading females. There was, of course, plenty of opportunity to read females, and I did uh, go forward and, and read Edith Wharton and George Eliot, which, you know, I think Middlemarch is one of the, is perhaps the greatest novel ever written, uh, Virginia Woolf. But, but that didn't happen. So, so I emerged from that far too ignorant about literature as, as from what I should have been as an English major went on to Cambridge to continue studying English lit and, and focused there on Renaissance literature, uh, focused on Ben Jonson's court masks, which are very wonderful uh, pieces of literary artifice and, and fold of, of gorgeous, ripe language. But I also studied linguistics and that started my separation from deconstruction. I fell in love with speech act theory which is sort of the opposite of deconstruction because it's all about what we can do with words as the great right. work by J.L. Austin said, you know, uh, how to do things with words and was about language as action, as things that change the world. I went back to Yale because Yale was still the summit. It, if you wanted to be a literary scholar and I was going to be a, a professor of comparative literature, I, I picked up German and Italian. I already knew French, and some, and I picked up some Spanish. Yale was the place to be because of the reign of high theory. When I returned in '80, after two years of study at Cambridge, I went back. I sat in, you know, I took Paul Demont's courses, and I was appalled. I heard him saying things that he had been repeating when I was there. Nothing had changed, and to now my ears. They struck me as absolute lunacy. Uh, Demon, in particular, um, he had got gone in this very bizarre direction, where his writing, his writing about Shelley, for instance, was obsessed with images of mutilation, decapitation, um, truly just grotesque, weird, violent imagery, uh, and and I realized that Yale was stuck in a in a discourse that was completely inadequate to the greatness of literature. So this was for me a, a real sort of a, a, an intellectual crisis because I had revered these people. I, I aspired, right. I, I, I revered my professors. I fell in love with all of them because they were the source of knowledge, sometimes real knowledge, sometimes specious knowledge. And, and I realized I couldn't go forward. So I left, I, piddled around for a bit. I eventually went to law school because I was still interested in high theory and I was interested in legal hermeneutics, the same problems of how you read text, how you interpret language. I realized came up in constitutional interpretation, 
So I went to law school just in order to continue studying issues of language and, and reading, but in a non-literature context, um, which meant that I was blind to the fact that law was actually about solving practical problems. And, and eventually after that, I clerked for a very left-wing judge, uh, but I didn't aspire to be a lawyer and I, I didn't become one really. And, and I came out of that period sort of angry about my wasted college education. And, and I aspired to write the definitive refutation of deconstruction. And I would hang out at the St. Mark's bookstore in New York off of Astor Place, you know, subjecting myself to the continuing reign of high theory and just getting madder and madder. And I created all these note cards that I was gonna do the definitive refutation. Uh, well, I never, I never wrote that, but I did start writing about other issues. By then, multiculturalism had completely destroyed the, the study of literature by injecting race and gender obsessions into the study of literature, which is far worse than anything deconstruction really did. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started writing for magazines like Salma Gundi and Partisan Review on, 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 on multiculturalism, postmodernism, and eventually was pushed to start doing real you know, reporting and public policy, which is something I had no background in. Uh, and, and then that from there I went on. But as I say, my heart lies with the humanities. I still believe that being a university professor is the greatest job one could ever have if the uh, universities hadn't been completely corrupted. Huh. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating, Heather. Thank you. This is David. So I, I wanted to go back to something that you said, which stuck out, and I want to test out a little bit of a simile here and see what you think. You said that um, the literature as it was presented to you as an undergraduate was really not about the content, about the communication of human meaning, but literature was really about its own demise. So that seems to me akin to the study of painting being reduced to the fact that the canvases will eventually corrode and, you know, the brushes will eventually uh, fall apart, that sort of thing. Um, and in, in distinction to that, we have Quintilian, right, the great Roman orator, who says that all communication is docere delectara moere. It's teaching, it's gratifying, and it's persuading. So my question for you as you experienced this, uh, this literary journey is, why would individuals even want to read literature if it affords no pleasure whatsoever? Or what kinds of pleasures can they get from a, a narrative which is really about um, the, the worthlessness or weakness of the literature that you're reading? Is that a question you've thought about at all? Or what motivates such people? Is it just power? Well, I can speak from personal experience. Uh, and because it was power but I, I don't mean that in a in this case in a negative or condescending way it felt like power because you were seeing it's like a mystery cult you know the Delphic mysteries that you were seeing something that the rest of the public could not see and you were learning a hidden dangerous truth you know I'm not a, a Straussian uh, and it the it's been described the way it's been described to me it's always very puzzling and they as I understand it, they keep talking about, uh, you know, and, and I think Alan Bloom was in that school, that there are these mystery knowledge, uh, hidden knowledge or hidden wisdom in the classics above all the, the Greek literature that the public is not privy to. And I've, I've never had anybody tell me, well, what exactly are those mysteries? But in this case, the mystery is that 
um, as I say, language always fails. And it felt like you were, you were part of the cutting edge and there was something inebriating to that. I am so ashamed that I, there were classmates of mine who were wise enough to reject this stuff. And, and they thought that it was just insane. I was so sort of, I don't know, self-centered or, or narrow in my mind that I regarded those early seers with a certain degree of condescension because I thought, well, you just don't understand. You know, this is really important. Now I regard them as preternaturally wise to have been able to reject something that, yes, you're absolutely right, David, does, uh, when you step back, say, well, why should we bother? If, if every, if, I mean, DeMond would read the same passage of Proust again and again, and, and I'm going again into, into the arcana of, of deconstruction, but one of the gestures was always to reduce metaphor to metonymy. And I'm not going to mm. go say beyond that, why that's significant, but he would do the same rhetorical deconstruction on every text. And it was, it, it was just repetitive. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but it, it, it served as a source of specialized knowledge. And now, I think there is, again, a sense of this being a mystery cult and the people that are involved in it are in their own world. I sometimes ask myself if I had never had my demystifying moment, and I was demystified with regards to deconstruction, the way deconstruction purports to be demystified when it comes to literature and illusions of meaning. If I had stayed in that world and I would have been successful, you know, I was, I was a very successful student and I'd lived always within that that delusion would i have been just as happy i mean it's, it's like plato's cave if you never turn around and see that you're just in the realm of shadows and you live in a world that that rewards your effort does it matter if right. you're living yep. in error for all of your life if you're in a context that supports that error and and i think it's better to live with truth but but many people go through their careers and and nothing ever challenges them and maybe they're just as happy as we are i don't know yeah that's that's great that's fantastic i wonder if i can if we can uh just go back to your biography for a moment and so so as you say you were um you know as a as a young student kind of seduced by this this stuff but came to kind of have a a very kind of polar opposite view was there um was it your time at cambridge was there kind of an aha moment was there a text that you read where you you just kind of said you know this is this is this is nonsense or was it more kind of a gradual um awakening away from uh deconstruction well no it really was linguistics i you know i realized this is the real study of language i was fascinated by syntax mm -hmm. uh we did chomsky i was fascinated by phonetics it is rigorous uh these are people that are actually struggling to understand the forms of language. And, and as I say, speech act theory, not just mm -hmm. Austin, but also John Searle, uh, I just found really mesmerizing. So it was, it was coming back to Yale with that exposure mm. that did provoke this crisis. But I, I don't, you know, I don't want to say that my education was utterly deficient in reading literature. And I will just say this, knowing that this is a classics uh, course, I, I feel a rather podcast, classics-based podcast. I was privileged to take 
a course by Thomas Gould in Greek tragedy and comedy. Mm. And, and he was, uh, there were still professors there that, that had not gone whole hog into high theory. And everybody felt maybe a little bit of a need, except the German department, God bless it, I think was the last holdout. Now, of course, it's gone completely all in. But um, uh, Gould was just able to convey the terror of these tragedies, the oddness, the weirdness, the strangeness of the Greek chorus and the Oresteia and the the movement on the stage of, you know, back and forth with the odes mm-hmm. and, and the, the counter odes and the masking uh, and, the, and the dancing and the singing. And it just, it's, it's utterly a hair-raising spectacle to think about. And, uh, you know, the Oresteia with its just exploration of absolutely primal forces of human beings that civilized society appears today to have forgotten about, even though that we're unleashing them by the day. We are unleashing the furies. We are unleashing the the bloodlust that when you break down law and order that the Oresteia shows us was hard fought and hard, hard won. Mm. Uh, people return to a savage state. Uh, so, you know, that was for me one of the seminal courses. But so I was able to do that and and Tom Green, Renaissance literature. He was very much on the fence, trying to introduce uh, some some degree of deconstructive awareness about problems of literary representation. But nevertheless, was a very traditional, deeply read scholar. John Frichero, I took uh, the Divine Comedy from. Gorgeous, beautiful man went on to teach at Stanford. But uh, he he was probably the most involved in literary theory of the more traditional scholars, but was able to um, nevertheless bring forth his deep knowledge of, of medieval literature. I will say this, that one real deaf problem with the new criticism, which is again, reading to just look very closely at the text and not be so concerned with context is that context, historical context, it turns out does matter. And so I struggled with Paradise Lost in my Freshman year, I remember breaking down in tears because I could not handle Milton's syntax initially. I mean, it is so Latinate and it just, it defeated me initially. Uh, and I eventually broke through and, and ended up just adoring the, the richness of his language, his description of paradise. But the idea of me reading Paradise Lost is actually ludicrous because I know nothing knew nothing about the theological debates then about the history uh, of 17th century England at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and so the new criticism creates an illusion as well that literature exists in this timeless realm uh, where it does not. It is often deeply informed by what's going on. And so you have to find some kind of balance between a a focus too much simply on context that doesn't pay attention to the words on the page and then paying attention to the words on the page to the ex- exclusivity of understanding other things that authors may have been responding to that are outside the literary text. And, you know, Jean Barthes, uh, Roland Barthes, 
famously said, il n'y a rien dehors le texte. There's nothing outside of the text. Mm. Well, that's mm -hmm. just ridiculous. Of course yes. there is, but that that is the assumption of deconstruction. Huh. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that idea that, um, and it kind of gets back to, I mean, things you were saying and, and David's question is, you know, at the end of the day, if you follow that path, what's the point? Um, if you can't say anything that's, that's you know, grounded in, in something that's lasting or eternal, why bother doing it in the first place? You know, as a, as a teacher and as a, a scholar myself, I mean, that this idea that um, understanding the context of uh, which produced a text or, or uh, this idea that um, it doesn't matter, you know, the death of the author, um, it never made any sense to me. It, it, it always struck me as so, as so nonsensical. Um, and to kind of to look at a text in its context struck me as such commonsensical mm -hmm. um, that yeah, what you're saying really resonates right. with me. Yeah. So Heather again, you have to, you have to give them the benefit of doubt. They they think they are involved in truth, and mm. but but of course you know what was often pointed out is that you know Demon or or even somebody in critical legal studies is going to sign a contract. I mean they they actually live as if language means things and is and that we can share stable meanings. So there is a, a contradiction between their view of, of um, the utter breakdown of meaning and, and how they go about leaving their lives and presumably talking with their family members and whatnot. But, right. but they, they would say, and, and I, I also am not going to use the word nihilism because I think conservatives overuse that, but, but they would say that they are involved in the pursuit of truth and that they are strong enough to look upon a a troubling reality and look at it in its face, hmm. sort of like the Gorgon head. Ah, hmm. lovely yeah. reference there, Heather. That's really excellent. But would you would you also say that they uh, uh, some like demand would say that I'm I am okay. I'm pursuing truth, but I also recognize that in ten years' time, my work will be completely meaningless because truth will have changed. Yeah, I don't know if they said that. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I bet you they didn't think that. But I'll tell you this. Um, David and Jeff, it, it, deconstruction went enough into my bloodstream before antibodies that I actually am uh, not a believer in eternal truth. I, 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 mm. I, I'm a, I guess I'm a sort of a pragmatist where I don't think, and I also don't think there is a single meaning of text. I don't see how anybody in the literary field who has seen the number of interpretations that any given poem or play can generate can actually believe that there's one single meaning there. Sure. And and so I do think that it, it just is, to me, it's empirically obvious that language does spin off a number of meanings and people respond to, to language very differently. I mean, it's very frustrating often. I, I don't particularly enjoy reading groups because one's own sense of what the text is about is shaken by everybody else who has completely different views. Right. So <laughs> how can you, how can you insist on a single meaning that that entails a certain amount of narcissism because it's always going to be your, I'll believe in like truth when somebody says, well, you have the right meaning. I don't. Uh, uh, and that huh. never happens. No, it's, <laughs> it's quite often the opposite. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Jeff, what is one thing, one thing you like about Hackett? I love their covers. I've said it, I've said it many times, but I'm going to keep saying it. Um, the cover of the Bacchae with Elvis Presley on the front, uh, the cover of the Iliad with the troops landing at D-Day. I love these really clever correlations with, of, um, 
contemporary or near contemporary events with antiquity. Um, I love I that's my one of my favorite things is when we can we can thread those things together. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's what we do here, right? Yeah. As we are uh, embiggeners, we try to attach, <laughs> we try to attach uh, literature and so forth to contemporary items. That's but right. back to Hackett. Yes. For more than forty years, they have been bringing high quality, inexpensive, attractive materials to the masses. Yep. When I when I first started reading Hackett, it was as a as a a student. Uh, in my grad school days, I believe, and once I had my own classroom, I knew that was going to be a go-to for me. And every year in my classes, I order Hackett publications, and I have a lot of them on my shelf at home, too. Absolutely. True story. Yep. True story. Uh, I'm teaching uh, a course this semester, Bonaventure, his uh, journey of the mind toward God, also Boethius, Consolation of Philosophy. And I thought, I wonder if Hackett has anything about that. <laughs> Silly question, right? Yes, right. Of, of course they do. Does Hackett have it? So I looked it up, Boethius, Consolatio Nat Philosophiae. They got it. So I contacted them, and a copy is on its way. Excellent. So fantastic. Deep, deep, deep catalog. Correct. Fantastic customer service, deep, deep catalog. Jeff, how can our listeners get some of this goodness? If they go to hackitpublishing.com, they find the text they want, they put them in their little grocery basket, and they type in the code AN2021, they will get 20% off their order and free shipping. That's incredible. I love the way you snuck the grocery basket in there. I, did. I tried to slip that past you. Squeaky wheel. <laughs> Dave, this podcast is also brought to us by the Moss Method. Hmm. Will you tell us something about the Moss Method? Well, of course I will. Office hours. This is the big new thing, right? Yes, yes. For weeks now, we have been meeting for Moss office hours. On Friday, typically, we meet for an hour. Anyone who is enrolled in the course gets to spend an hour with me. It's not as great as it sounds. (laughs) Maybe it doesn't sound great at all. I have to spend every waking minute with myself. Back to the subject, right? Yeah, yeah. But so, but what are they talking about? What are you guys learning? Well, what we're is... talking about Greek. Oh, Greek. Okay. So we cover classical subjects. You've got a question about Homer, as students tend to do. You have a New Testament subject. We've looked at the Gospel of Mark. We've looked at uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians, other places. Or if you have a Moss-related question for those who are working their way through the text. So the program is self-paced, expert, and accessible. The office hours are the accessible part. Nice. And then after each little office hour, I excerpt a tiny lesson. I put it out there to the masses. They can see it. They can understand. This is the way to take my Greek from neophyte to erudite. Exactly. So go to Mm mossmethod.com and click on the link. It's a $299 value. We run sales throughout the year, but you're not going to want to miss this opportunity to elevate your study of the Greek language. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, uh, coming from our friends way out there in, on the West Coast, it is... Uh, Portland. Portland, right. Uh, and they have created a machine that will deliver uh, high-quality brew right in your home. No need to go down to the local coffee shop. Um, Ratio Coffee has found the secret to great coffee at an affordable price. Absolutely. Solves all of our brew-based aesthetic problems. That's right. You got the eight, ratio eight. I do have the ratio eight. Now, I had a little trouble this week. Oh, no. Yes, I um, I ran out of filters. Oh, no. Yeah, so I usually use the, the metal one, but it got a little clogged. And as I was cleaning it, not a ratio product, I went generic on the filter. But yeah. Anyway, while I was waiting for the um, the filters to arrive, I had to drink some inferior coffee. Oh, that, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was yeah. like a catabasis, let me tell you. I went down into the bad coffee and... Oh. Barely escaped with <laughs> my soul intact. <laughs> you, ret- you return, um, not never quite the same. Not yeah. never quite the same. You never go home again. The right? brackish tang hung around me, thick in the air. Yeah. I have a similar kind. Of, it's not as dark as that. Okay. The, today, after class, a student came up to me and said, hey, I work at this 
coffee shop whose right. name you would recognize. Okay, don't name it. I won't. And she handed me a coupon for a, fr- a free beverage. She said, you know, for some week, would you like this? And so I smiled and I said, yeah. I said, you thank you I was so kind much. of you. And then you turned around. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this? It's going gonna, gonna to be a letdown. Right. Yeah. You turned around and tossed it in the trash, <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> Speaking of coupons, yes. great segue, Winkle. Yeah. Uh, big announcement, right? Right. Not only the ratio six at 15% off, mm-hmm. right? What's that code? That is ANCO. Yes, ANCO. But Mark has arranged a special coupon, ANCO. You can now get 15% off the ratio eight. That is now available. Yes, because the eight, as you know, has been out of stock because it's such a beautiful machine. It is. It's back in stock. And you, ad nauseum listener, you want to get the ratio eight, enter the same coupon code ANCO, get 15% off. I want to keep some stats here. Like, like how many people buy the eight versus the six? I, can, I think we can gauge it. It's like, who do they like better, you or me? <laughs> well, <laughs> we all know who they like better. You're the good cop. I'm the bad cop. That's, I'm, the, I'm the pedantic glass, mostly empty. You're the optimistic glass, overflowing kind of guy. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. So I, I'd like to veer into the political just for a moment here. Um, and that is when you were talking about your experience of the Greek tragedy and comedy class, and you were talking about uh, the limitations and the fine line between order and chaos, and you started talking a little bit about the furies and so forth that have been uh, unleashed. It's a two-part question. Do you remember which of those tragedies spoke to you most and why? And then uh, secondly, in our correspondence, we we talked briefly about um, the concept of Hellenic pessimism, which seems like it's an idea that's very salient to a lot of your work, that people complain about the excesses of policing, they complain, uh, the supposed excesses, they complain about the, the many uh, small and some great injustices in society, but they seldom contemplate the alternative. What if some of these uh, provisions were taken away, then we would see the real breakdown of society and, and people just getting stomped on um, in, in various settings. So it's a two-part question, you know, take it however you want or or ignore it altogether. I think the Oresteia for me really was the, the sort of the most shook me to my core, but I also adored um, the Baki by Dionys- by Euripides rather, and, right. and the the sense there again of this power of madness, of delusion, the cross-dressing I find fast fascinating. I've always been a, mesmerized by transvestites and the blending of the male and female characteristics in in one person. There's a beauty there that combines the male and the female that I find just utterly, utterly hypnotic. Um, And and so the Baki is just that the plot is just so extraordinarily devilish and cruel, but also full of 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 surprises and and amazing kind of insights into human delusion. So mm-hmm. that that was also very important. And I, I loved Aristophanes, but I can't think off the top of my head of <laughs> right. any of those. But they, the comedies were fantastic. Sure, um, sure. As far as Hellenic pessimism, yeah, I mean, I that, you know, that's sort of a conservative trope taking it aside from the Hellenic part that it's said that conservatives kind of don't believe in progress and they, they believe in human nature. And 
And I would agree with that and I would subscribe to that, but then I think that doesn't really match with the the sort of Reagan-esque optimism. So I'm, I'm not sure that's quite true, but I would, I definitely do think, and I, I think we have made progress. I think that the enlightenment was progress morally. I think the ideas of, of tolerance, of secularism uh, have taken us away from at least the, the brutal wars of religion. So I, I think that, and, and to say we don't progress on a material basis, is of course, patently absurd. But, right. but yes, I, I guess I would say that there is just a constant desire on the part of human beings that will never change for power. Once you have power, you abuse it. Uh, Americans are clueless about this trajectory that we're on where you we wonder when when do we pull the emergency cord and let's say we are heading towards some kind of Stalinist totalitarian state. Uh, we think that somehow, well, I think people are just simply ignorant to the, but to the extent they think about it at all, they, they must assume there's something in America's DNA that will prevent hmm. the seizure of, of state power to crush dissent, to crush freedom of speech, but we're moving there quite quite quickly. And as far as just sheer violence, you know, that that's going on in, in every inner city neighborhood in the country today with these mad drive-by shootings that are the most barbaric acts imaginable. Uh, and when you remove law and order, when you remove the, the justified and, and constitutionally restrained power of the state to enforce norms, uh, you do unleash the, the 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 thirst for revenge, the tit for tat killings that we see that is driving the inner city. It is right out of the Aristia, you know that what it's it's one blood cycle after another, right. and people. It's not like they're taking justice into their own hands in the inner city because they don't believe in justice. They're just wanting to kill uh, their enemies. But but we do have to hand over the the power of justice to the state, I think, in order to live in a civil society. Hmm. Hmm. And Jeff, uh, thank you very much, Heather, for, for that answer. And Jeff, you were interested in asking Heather, um, as we were you know, doing our research for this episode, mm-hmm. uh, about the time she spent uh, in Italy, Studying in Italy? Yes. Yeah, Heather, if, if, uh, if a Wikipedia can be believed, it, it <laughs> says you, you, uh, you spent some time in Italy uh, studying, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that time. Again, uh, back to these kind of these core questions, how that, how that shaped you um, in your own study, in your own, in your own thought. Well, I was just there. I was at Perugia at the Università per Stranieri learning mm-hmm. Italian, so I was not studying uh, Italian art or literature, but I... I hung out with the, a bunch of students from then Yugoslavia uh, because unlike other American students who I have to say, I feel contempt for that inevitably blanket themselves with other Americans. You know, they go on school year abroad, so they go to language programs and they speak English the whole time. Right. Uh, I, you know, was determined to get my Italian up to speed and the, the Yugoslav students were just so kind and, and wonderful. So we all spoke Italian together. Um, mm. And I did visit a lot of the Umbrian hill towns. There was a, a young art history Italian student there who took me around to San Sepolcro and and Arezzo, and and so 
I certainly saw a lot of the Renaissance art, but I was doing the language course, which was not particularly uh, rigorous. I had learned German at, at Middlebury. And at that point, that was, if you wanted to learn a language quickly, that was the place to be. Since then, it's gone way soft and doesn't require people to go to language labs and repeat because, oh, that would be just too boring and, you know, <laughs> too, too masculinist or whatever. Uh, but at the time, it was, it was sheer rote repetition, ringing changes on grammatical structures, and it, it drove German into my head. The Italian was the study at Perugia was much, much more sort of relaxed and whatnot. So you, I, I don't have as, I don't feel like I have as strong a grounding as in grammar as I do for German. But, but so that's why I was there. I wish I could say that I was there to study Bernini, but I wasn't. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you um, do you have any Latin in your background? Have you did you study? No, Latin? I found it's the weirdest thing. I found it on Latin. I didn't take it up until senior year of college, and and I'd had no problem with German with its case structure, but for some reason, I I just couldn't make it with Latin. I, I in Cambridge, I continued. Uh, we tried to read book four of the Aeneid, and I just oh. never, I never felt what made Virgil great. I, I was struggling too much. I was struggling too much to connect the syntax. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you don't have to name names. I'm not, I'm not looking for that. But I have found that for certain disciplines, the quality of the teacher makes all the difference. I mean, a student can certainly be stubborn to the learning of a subject and a good teacher will make no headway. But a student who's interested and, you know, has some basic to positive intelligence, uh, a good teacher can, you know, can really ignite that passion. So it makes me a little bit sad that book four of the <laughs> I know <laughs> didn't too. speak to you. It's got well, that. I, had, I don't know. I don't I don't even really remember my Latin teacher at Yale, but I had Wheelock. I mean, I, I don't remember <laughs> thinking that he was that the you know, the teacher was deficient in any way. Uh, it may be, it may be for me, I, it helps to have the oral capacity as well. Oh. I, I don't know. I don't know. But, um, well, you know, there's a renaissance in uh, the United States and actually worldwide of spoken Latin. It's something that, yeah, of which I'm a practitioner. I'm not one of the, the better ones, but I happen to, to know a lot of individuals who, who attempt to use Latin as a living language, and uh, some of them are extraordinarily fluent. So perhaps maybe, you know, after your, I don't know, 15th, 16th book, you can take some time. And <laughs> and uh, I, I particularly loved in the diversity delusion, your most recent work, I read it about a month ago, um, I loved the references to Petrarch that you, you dropped in, where Petrarch is, uh, some people say Petrarch, He's writing letters to the ancients, and you, you, you use that as a point of contrast, um, I think, to how the study of literature used to be uh, connecting us to the, the, um, the world's larger questions and just the beauty of human expression and communication. I thought that was an excellent um, contrast, and so that's when I thought we should see if, if Heather will be a guest on our podcast because we speak the same language in some ways. Yeah, well, they were... Uh it's not just that the letters to the ancients by Petrarch connected to the larger world. It's that he felt so close a connection to the authors he read. Uh, and so he could rebuke C Cicero for his seeming uh, mean spiritedness. 
uh, as as revealed in some of his own Cicero's own writings. Right. And then and then Petrarch uh, felt bad about about rebuking him and wrote him another letter saying, well, you know, please don't think I'm really mad at you or anything like that because you are, after all, my God. But but that degree of deep connection with authors and and being able to lose oneself in their language uh, is something that has been lost with with identity politics. And and it is an opportunity. Literature should be an opportunity to get out of yourself. You know, we are I am just so ignorant. I'm so narrow in my concerns and my only hope for escaping the the binding quality of my own limited uh, awareness or experience is is through art and literature but also music and 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 painting and now there's just this narcissism that's taken over where students insist on virtually studying themselves if they don't see themselves reflected in a text they don't feel like there's any point in reading that book. And that's just, as far as I'm concerned, just the most perverse and ignorant way uh, to approach the past. And, you know, I'm, I'm also very grateful. I was thinking about this recently this weekend. I was with a very charming younger woman who's actually sort of involved in overseeing the college scene. But it's quite clear she has not had a humanistic education. Uh, we we were at an event uh, that involved a, sort of the art history in America, and she never had heard of Edward Hopper. And, mm. and I'm very grateful that I did do art history, that my mind, although I don't know much history, I do have a good sense of stylistic evolution, both in the visual arts, in music, and in literature. And so especially for art history, I think it gives you a map to think about the evolution of human style. I, I, I've written, I, I know, I think there's no greater drama than the evolution of, of style, whether it's in language or, or literature or art. It's just extraordinary the, the changes that have been wrought in literary form and how do we go from the medieval epic romance to the 19th century realistic novel, what sort of changes were involved in how human beings thought about themselves and expressed themselves to go from one to the other. It's, it's a stunning, absolutely dramatic revolutionary change, but to be able to sort of situate, uh, you know, ancien regime painting in my head and compare that to, uh, you know, turn of the 19th century to the, the Napoleon Napoleonic era of painting and then later as as you get the the neoclassicism evolving into into uh you know more of the beaux-arts style and and then the obviously the counter revolution the revolution against it with impressionism or going back further to renaissance into the baroque that gives you a place in the world and i ask myself what is it like to be a young person today who also like me knows very little history but has been not exposed at all to the history of arts. Like what's in their head instead? I guess it's just Instagram or something. <laughs> I do think it's, it's largely pop culture. I yeah. It's an emptiness right. and that's tragic. It's tragic because I don't purport to be a scholar of anything. And you could say, I, you know, as somebody who's an expert in porcelain, 
could say, well, you're missing out a lot because you can't tell the change over 50 years in the, you know, the, the factory in, in, in Belgium that was making porcelain. You don't know that stylistic evolution. So there's always somebody who can one up you in knowledge, but I, I feel I'm grateful for the, the knowledge I do have. And, and I just think it's, it's absolutely horrifying that the university and the K through 12 system has given up on trying to, to populate the imaginations of students with a sense of the past, both historical and, 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 and art historical. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I found that, um, and when I when I do teach, um, you know, uh, Western Civ surveys, where we're doing lots of literature, lots of art, um, trying to find a kind of a common language, a common ground, um, is is almost impossible. Even you know when I, we do some lighter stuff in class, we do you know look at parodies or you know to, to showing uh, students a you know a parody of the Beatles' Abbey Road uh, album cover. And they have no idea what this is about, or a parody of the Arnolfini portrait. Um, I mean, more will get something there that that's um, you know riffing on uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, but that kind of that that common language, that common grounding, in uh, you know just to you know we're talking you know maybe you know art historical grounding, it's just not there anymore, and it just kind of adds to kind of this fragmented um, you know nature of, of sort of the students that come into my classroom. Yeah, it's just, it's utterly tragic. And yeah. it's not just that we don't share a common language. So that's kind of a utilitarian argument mm. that we need something to hold us together. And Edie Hirsch has been very good about the need for a common core. And, and I, I use that term. I know there's a lot of dispute over the current common core, which is really, I think that's, so far as I understand it, a misnomer because it does not teach um the classics, it goes instead for like a lot of nonfiction and excerpts and whatnot. But but Hirsch talked about the need for a, a common language of, of the past and, and great mm. works. But but I also feel like for me, I, I refuse utilitarian arguments. I, I refuse to say I somebody sent me recently a, a little music program that he was very proud of in his in his uh, parish <coughs> church in Connecticut that was going to try and go into the schools and, and give students some rudiments of classical music. But of course it ended with the usual, just pandering. Well, of course the study of music helps people cognitively and socially and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, oh, yeah. BS. No, the study <laughs> right. of music exposes you to beauty. That is an end in itself. And that is true for literature and art as well. And Absolutely. the reason to study these works is to keep them alive. If we do not study them, they die at least temporarily. They at least mm. go into cold storage until somebody awakens them with a, a kiss of Eros again. And it is on us, it is on our shoulders to keep these works that we don't deserve alive. And and that's the problem. Uh, you know, it's not just that we don't have a common base of reference because in fact, they do have a common base of reference. Now it's shallower and shallower and you know, who knows what the span is at five years it's obviously if it doesn't go back to the Beatles, you know that's that's pretty shallow, but um, but they speak a common language. Yeah. Uh, but, but the problem is is that we have turned our backs on the greatness of the past. 
Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's an aesthetic selectivity, I would say, that's completely inconsistent. When I get the pragmatic argument from my students and others that I interact with, they say, you know, well, you you teach Latin, but what use is that? Right. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, it's it's beautiful, Um, kind of like a Haydn piano sonata is beautiful. But people don't um, people don't apply their aesthetic principles consistently. I ask them, you know, why do you paint your house a certain color? You know, why do you care what your food tastes like? How how come you wear different you know colored shirts? And you know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg doesn't. He wears only the gray hoodie. But <laughs> why do you bother with all of these things when they're they're really just aesthetic choices? They have nothing to do with the functionality of the rest of your life. But in the arts, suddenly a novel or a piece of music has to justify its existence. I, it doesn't make sense. Interesting. Yep. That's absolutely right. Uh, and I just, I hate that argument. And I, I, I gave a speech uh, at the Manhattan Institute making the case for the humanities and, and, uh, a young, youngish middle-aged man stood up and, and he, he was very waspy. I mean, he looked like he came from a, a new England family, very tall and slender and, and, one could imagine him having had a fairly classical education, you know, because one imagined him going to prep schools, but he made the argument, well, you know, how does this help my student get a job? And I guess I would preserve some part of education for people who maybe don't need to worry about that right away, that that want to devote themselves to, to the classics and to the study of literature without always thinking about does this translate into a consulting gig at at McKinsey or Bain or whatnot. And right. you know, one one can make the argument that well it turns out that a humanities or a history background, you learn critical thinking, which is a term that just makes you want to vomit. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the thing that students do not learn. But again, what we need is substance, not not structure. We need substantive content knowledge. But if it meant that college was for fewer people, that would be a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Mm, but I, right. so for this reason, I was very much opposed the the Donald Trump administration under Betsy DeVos. Had, they inherited a, a system of evaluating colleges based on the salaries of their graduates. Right. And and DeVos took it one step further and wanted to start evaluating majors based on the salaries of their graduates. And I thought this was disastrous because it just encourages people all the more to think of college as simply a place for, you know, boosting one's one's economic value in the marketplace. And and I I may just be protected and and privileged to think that for some people at least it should be a, a four year hiatus from the marketplace to just be able to mm-hmm. to absorb our past. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Two quick points, Jeff, and then you have a, a question, I think. I do. First is, I'm really satisfied that we got Heather to say on the Ad Nauseum podcast that something makes her want to vomit. Did you catch that? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a setup. I'm so no. very like, You didn't yeah. ring a bell or anything. I don't know. No, no. We're, we're going to use that. That's going to be a clip. Oh, of course. <laughs> and this, the second point is it strikes me as very ironic that most of the individuals, there are some exceptions. Haydn had a nice sinecure, but most of the individuals who in the course of history have produced the greatest art, many of them have been mostly unemployed and, you know, driven in uh, 
you know, circumstances of poverty, like Solzhenitsyn grinding out his existence in the gulag. Meanwhile, he's preparing to write one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. So pragmatism didn't apply to the creators of these great works of art. So, you know, why should it apply to the hmm. consumers? But yeah, 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 yeah. I digress. Go yeah. ahead, Jeff. A couple of things that made me really excited. You you talk about Euripides Bacchae, which is my all-time favorite Greek tragedy. And you, all, you also uh, mentioned Edward Hopper, who is my favorite American artist. And I think that I mean I think there's a link you know if I can stretch it like there's a link between them I both find both Hopper and Euripides um, haunting and lonely um, and disturbing in their own in their own ways in the way that they 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 hit you um, but my question is to get back to what we were talking about with kind of this you know this pragmatic uh, view of education and I'm just kind of curious what your take is kind of where where do you think that comes from is it just kind of an American pragmatism that kind of fights against that you know, beauty for beauty's sake. Um, it's just kind of the, the the waves of culture as we're experiencing them now. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Heath and Hansen's book that came out in the 1990s, Who Killed Homer? Um, and the kind of their answer is, I mean, a couple of classicists, Victor Davis, Hansen, and John Heath, um, their answer to that question was, who killed Homer? Classicists killed Homer. So, you know, so where is kind of this this devaluing of the humanities come from? Is it just kind of this this uh, American pragmatism, or is it, um, getting back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this of this podcast, is it, um, you know, the, the professors themselves strangled it? I think it's absolutely both. And I think you're absolutely right, Jeff, that there is an American pragmatism. I, I think we've all, always been more uh, vocational oriented, you know, de Tocqueville and other European observers came to the United States and they said, God, all these people care about is making money. And you know, they work all the time and it's all they think about. Uh, and we didn't have, and and you say that, well, a lot of artists were starving, that's true. And, and but you know, they did aspire to a court sponsorship, but a lot of art was produced by aristocratic patrons. And, and I am not compelled to apologize for that in the least. I think that the aristocracy had notions of grandeur and and nobility and greatness that were very rarely lived up to, but nevertheless did inspire uh, an artistic style above all the Baroque that I think is absolutely uplifting and, and some of the greatest ex expressions of, of the human spirit. And, and America didn't come out of that tradition. And so in one sense, you know, we were kind of borrowing that legacy, but we did borrow it. and. But there's always been these sort of debates about democratic elitism. Can we have, you know, museums were for the people? To what extent is is that legacy of, of high art and culture compatible? How, how deeply should it spread within the social classes and, and various utopian visions that oh completely and, and, and then other people may have been a little less involved with that. But, you know, what's interesting is that Nevertheless, our education system until quite well into the 19th century still was absolutely based in the classics. There right. was a debate at Yale. For, I thought, you know, the canned story is that it was the start of the German research university in the 1870s and Johns Hopkins uh, picking that up that said, no, universities are about the generation of new knowledge above all in the sciences. And that gave rise to our idea of research university and gave rise to the awful idea at Harvard of, of students having electives and being able to choose their own curriculum, which is the beginning of the end. But even back <laughs> in the 1820s, 
there was this debate at Yale about whether to dislodge the study of Greek and Latin from the absolute core of, of the undergraduate education. So these currents of saying this is outdated and not practical enough were set in much earlier than I had previously understood. Yale at, in the 1820s decided, no, this is still the center. You know, we're not going to do this. And, you know, we all think of um, John Stuart Mill as being all about debate. He's been invoked by, you know, during our free speech wars on campuses, standing for the proposition of, well, we need a debate of opinion on campuses, which I think is a, is a fallacious I ideal. It's not about debate. It's not about opinion. It's about knowledge. But he gave a speech as, as um, the head of, of St. Andrews University in Glasgow, he was brought and said, that also said, no, the core of education is Greek and Latin. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's about absorbing knowledge. It's not about debate. So that was a, an ideal that we did hold on to for, for some time. As far as the classicists killing the classics, I, I, I haven't read Hansen's book, but so he was, so when you said it was from the eight nineties, so they were already taking up this trope about classics being just a, an outpost of, of white supremacy, because that certainly reached a, a an absolute din of complaint recently with the right, guy right. At Harvard Peralta, Daniel Peralta, Princeton, and the, Princeton. Yeah, right. Princeton, I mean, sorry. Right. Um, yeah. No. So the book doesn't, uh, the book is actually against that proposition. It's well, of course it is. But, 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 but was, was that already happening? The, oh, the yes. attempt to reduce classics to just to see it through a, a racial lens was already back in the nineties. It, it, it was, I, I Hanson and Heath were in the book are more reacting to, uh, theory kind of, um, definitely. Yeah. Kind of postmodern just deconstruction of theory as what's kind of devaluing the, right. classics, the yes. unholy Trinity, right. Of race, class, race, class, and gender. Right. For sure. Uh, well, we want to be respectful of your time, Heather, but this this has been a, a wonderful conversation. If you had prophetic powers, this is my last question for you. <laughs> um, I'll try to set up the question a little bit. What, what do you think about the prospects for the survival in American culture in the 21st century of these things that we love and appreciate, the Bacchae, uh, Haydn, Mozart, even the Aeneid Book Four, which you know some some are lukewarm to, <laughs> not um, lukewarm, just just in, 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 not equal to. I'm not equal I'm, to. Uh, I'm just teasing. So 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 Periclean Athens, right? A small society, highly aristocratic, and produced you know works that will last the test of time. Same for um, Florence under the Medici. So. It, it only takes a very small number of people, I suppose, with committed supporters to keep these important things alive. You know, if you were a prophetess, what do you think? What does it look like for the future? Well, I am a Hellenic pessimist. I'm, I'm by nature a pessimist, so I, I have to take all of my views with a grain of salt because I know that there's people that are constitutional optimists and they would, you know, it's the glass half full, glass half empty thing. And, and so I tend to be pretty dark about evaluating my future my, my present and that carries into the future because i've not seen anything improve in the way we think about our past or our or the or the greatness of of art since the 1980s i've not seen any improvement nevertheless you do mention kind of the idea of small loci of of culture and so that is the challenge can we create institutions 
that will preserve these works, that will have enough prestige in the wider culture to be populated? Will, will parents be willing to send, if, if we could create a school that would be just forthrightly elitist uh, in, its, in its choice of literature? I guess I, I'm not very familiar with the St. John's campuses, but I certainly support the idea in theory of, of a mandated great works curriculum uh, can we create institutions that will be prestigious enough to, to get over the problem of, of status-obsessed parents who only care about credentializing their child with as, as prestigious a degree as, as they can get? So people are thinking about it. You know, there's some efforts. There's this Ralston College that is starting in, in the South with Stephen Blackwood that mm -hmm. is starting with the master's, but you know, aspires to be a, a more traditional education. So it's certainly imperative. And I, I would just hope that some philanthropists would stop thinking that the only thing they need to support is centers to study capitalism and free markets, which are obviously important, but they would devote some of their philanthropic giving to to the pure, pure, unpragmatic art for its art, its own sake. Hmm. Indeed, here, here. Wonderfully said. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, we could we try something brand new for the first time. Do you have any questions for us, Heather? <laughs> well, uh, what is your views on, on the future? I know that David, his own classics department was was uh, uh, dismantled. So mm -hmm. what true. do you think? What do you think the solution is going to be? Right. Well, it's very kind of you to ask. Um, I think that the classics will absolutely survive and will indeed thrive and in fact may do better if unhooked from some of the pragmatism that drives institutions of higher education uh, may survive better outside the academy, but it will take individuals, like you were saying, who will put their philanthropic support behind it, and also who will um, unapologetically make the, the non-pragmatic and aesthetic arguments that we've been talking about. So I'm by nature quite pessimistic also, <laughs> as Jeff can tell you. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's how I see it. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm I'm the uh, more the optimist of, of the two of us, and I and I think it, with regard to this question, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Although I, I I wouldn't make any prediction about kind of where things are ultimately going. I mean, I just know that when I I you know students come into my mythology class or into my you know, my art survey classes, and and you know the vast majority are coming in because they've been required to take this as a core as a core requirement, and they they have um, no real desire to be there and then to watch them come alive and they 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 see i love this stuff you know this is this it really it really turns them on and it really lights a fire now whether that you know leads them to study it further uh, in some regard i you know in, in many cases i have no idea but i see you know i see it on their faces and i hear it in their questions and um it's enlivening and uh, if students get a chance uh to uh, to um encounter the stuff they walk away the better for it um, mm. Well, we need, the problem is, you know, we need graduates departments to turn out more students like, like you, David and Jeff, and that's, that's not happening now. And then, mm. and, and you, David and Jeff will not get, you would not get hired now. So <laughs> <laughs> unless you've got some features that I don't know about that yeah. a bit intersectional, it's, it's kind of hopeless, but I yeah. could mow, I could mow your lawn maybe or wash your car. <laughs> Oh, way too masculine. 
man. Well, thank you so much, Heather. This yeah. has been an absolute delight. You are uh, you're as charming uh, viva voce as on on the page. So thank you for giving us your time. Thank you so much. Well, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much, and I I look forward to being in further contact with you guys. Oh, thank Sounds you great. so much. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. Well, that wraps it up. That was great. What an episode. What huh? an episode. Yeah, what a mind. Yeah, right? I think we probably had more fun with that than the listener ever could. <laughs> probably, yeah. So big thanks to Heather for joining us and can't can't say thanks enough. Yes. And if you haven't followed her on social media, you know, read some of her books, by all means, check it out. You don't have to agree with everything you read, uh, but, you know, she might persuade you. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, we have other people to thank before we, we get out of here. We got to thank uh, Mishka, our engineer, for the great work that she always does week after week. Thanks to uh, Ken Tamplin and Scott Vinzen for the great music. Uh, how can people contact us if they have questions or comments? Sure, they can go to, um, well, they can send an email, mm-hmm. as many are doing, for which we're grateful, to jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V, or to dave at adnauseum.com. Same routine. Send us your suggestions, your critiques, your angry screeds, uh, you know, whatever you'd like. We'd like to hear from you. Suggestions for uh, future episodes, that kind of thing. If you want a shout out. If you want a shout out, we do that. Let us know who you are. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you can go to the uh, Apple site or the Spotify site where you listen to us, leave a review, tell your friends. We'd appreciate it so much. Yeah. We still have some of those stickers available, mm-hmm. right? Ad nauseum, show people you're taking in the classics. And keeping them down. That's right. Three ninety nine is kind of an impulse buy. Yeah, exactly. Like like the checkout aisle, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and Jeff, what do we have uh, on tap for next week? Well, I mean, this was such a big episode. I feel like we need to regroup a little bit. Um, and hit, hit Club Med maybe for hit, a while. Exactly right. Hit, hit the beach. Just kind of let this soak in. And Which so- you hate, by the way. I, I don't like laying on beaches, <laughs> right? Uh, so the topic, to be determined. To be determined. Mm-hmm. I like that. TBD. Could be one of our most successful actually yes yes indeed and dave you got the gustatory party shot right i got this one this weekend it's one i like very much it's from uh, an author named nitya prakash i hope i pronounced his name correctly and uh, here it goes i won't be impressed with technology until i can download food oh i can get behind that that's right thanks for listening thank you